so much. Neshama Hashem and Aliyah from all our Torah and all the brachas and coming together in the family in Nechama. Bez Hashem. Okay, so here we go. So Parsha's Noach, second Parsha in the Torah. So we're familiar with the uh, broader story of Noach, with the flood and everything that went down. 120 years were surprisingly, I mean, you'd think Noach was a big tzaddik. Somebody would listen. Somebody, right? He's giving Musa for 120 years. Not a single person ended up in the ark with him and his family to be safe, which is uh, quite surprising. Maybe we'll have time to get onto that. But uh, we're actually introduced to Noach at the end of last week's Parsha, where we have from Adam, 10 generations down to Noach. And our Parsha begins by telling us, Ela told us Noach, this is the offspring of Noach. And wh- who's gonna, wh- what's the offspring of Noach? What do you expect the verse to say? Shem Chom and Yofis, right? His, his children. These are the offspring of Noach. Says the verse, you know who they are? Ish, he was a man. Tzadik, he was a tzadik. Tomim Haya, and he was complete Bedorosov in his generation. Eshalokim, his halich Noach. Noach walked with Hashem. Now, the next verse says, oh, and it was born to Noach, three children. But that's, if you look at the, the way the verse is constructed, Noach's offspring... These are, this is Noach's offspring. He was an Ish, Tzadik, Tamim, Haya, Bedoyer, in his generation. And all the commentators jump at this and they bring out a imp- very important and, and crucial message. And they say because this verse is letting us know really the only offspring that we can control and determine that's completely in our power is our own actions. We have no power of anything else. Even You might have blood offspring, you might have physical offspring. You might have the, the uh, desire to impact others. And even that, even if a person has, has uh, children, you know what? They have their own lives. They have their own Bechira. You could try your best to be a guide, but that's, that's the most you could do. Everybody's got their own, uh, everybody's got their own Neshambas and their own journey and their own path and their own Bechira, their own free will. What is the determining factor? What is really our offspring? Says the verse, to be an Ish, first and foremost, the, the, the Tzadikim teach us to, the importance of following order. Ish is be a mensch. That's first. Once you're a mensch, you can be a tzaddik. You can't be a tzaddik and be righteous and do all the right things if you're not a mensch first. So you have to follow this order, otherwise everything's going to be backwards. First of all, ish, and then you can be a tzaddik. What's a tzaddik? A tzaddik is someone who makes mistakes. A righteous person is somebody who makes mistakes, but stays on the path, like we discussed, like we've described you know, throughout Rosh Hashanah and, uh, and Yom Kippur, where... Uh, we're taught Sheva Yipol Tzadik, a Tzadik falls seven times. Shema Yipol, you have fallen and you're still a Tzadik, Vakam, and you get back up. Many people interpret it to mean a Tzadik falls seven times, but he gets back up, so there's still a Tzadik. That's not what it means. Sheva Yipol Tzadik, when are you called a Tzadik? Even before you get back up. Even after you fell, you didn't even get back up yet. A person still outside because they're they're remaining in the, with the proper approach and with the proper path. You want me to close the door? Make it easier. Yeah. yeah thank okay. You. I thought it was okay. So, um, so uh, a tzaddik is somebody who <laughs> wants to do the right thing and is striving to do the right thing, but doesn't necessarily always do the right thing. And then there's a tummim, a person who's complete, which means they always do the right thing. But you can't start very often. We look towards the end game, or like, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to be perfect. I'm going to do everything, and then. We kind of want to work backwards. You know, and afterwards I'll try to be a mensch. And afterwards, you know. But for now I'm going to be like an ultra-religious machmir everything. 
I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna be like ultra and everything, and then work backwards. And the truth is, we can strive to keep working our way up, but it doesn't work uh, the other way around. Where was Noach this ish tzaddik tamim? He was doing this bedorosav in his generation, surrounded by people where he couldn't get one other person to enter the ark with him. If one other person would have had the merit to be saved from the flood, they would have been able to join in the ark. So he was surrounded by a society that was so manipulative and and confused and twisted. There's for sure people who thought they were tzaddikim. For sure people thought they were. There's no question about it. Um, but for 120 years, it took him to build the teva. It shouldn't have taken that long. It, did, it didn't take that long. Hashem instructed him to spend 120 years building it to give the world 120 years to do tshuva. But the Twin Towers went up in four years. Yeah, there was a whole crew, right? But uh, it takes time to build things. It doesn't take 120 years, even if Noah could reach, you know, and especially with all the miracles that Hashem performs, could be done in a second, in an instant. The 120 years are for a reason. And through all that time, Noah himself couldn't get a single other person. And it's a... And, and the Torah is instructing us about his greatness, that he was a ish tzaddik tamim in his generation. So he had nothing going for him, no support system. And sometimes, sometimes we can find this in our own lives and our own environments and society. Sometimes we feel like, you know what? Why, am I the only sane person around? Am I the only person who like gets what's happening? Am I the only, like, where, where is everybody? What is happening? And it's like, a, it's a very confusing feeling. And you feel like you're the only person who's doing the right thing or is interested in being on the right path. And the Torah says, yeah, that's how great Nayach was. In his generation, surrounded by all this, he's, he remained in Ishtadik Tamim. He just did what the Rabbi Shalom wanted from him. How so? By having a single focus. And that is, I just want to walk with Hashem. I'm walking with the Rabbi Shalom. Yeah, go ahead. So, taking what you just said, um, why... At the end, why did he become drunk after he was at such a high level and so connected to Hashem? And the only one, I mean, he had to be an incredibly strong person not to be influenced by all the schmutz around him. Right. So what happened? Beautiful question. After the Teva, Noach does make a mistake. The question, and the mistake is, he goes immediately to plant a vineyard. Right, he wants to go uh, and make wine and he's held accountable. For uh, that being his first focus. It was L'Shem Shemayim. I mean, he did it because we know that on uh, Shabbos and Yom Tif, what uh, the way to celebrate and the way to make a Suda and to uh, take the physical and, and make it spiritual is by meat and wine and all those things. And I certainly had the, the right, it was the right approach at the wrong time for him. And that was part of him being a tzaddik, striving to do the right thing. But the same way Moshe hit the rock, when he should have spoken to the rock. And it's a, it's a very nuanced thing. So the Gemara, the, the Torah is letting us know, Nayach as well. Yeah, you could, you could be somebody who God himself testifies that you're an ish tzaddik tamim, and you can make these mistakes. You, you, you probably will. You probably will. I mean, I can say I certainly do. I, for sure, constantly am making mistakes, thinking, trying, hoping to do the right thing, but no, ultimately it was the wrong thing. And then you find out it was the wrong thing and you should have done it differently. Fine, so now I know. Right, um, one of my friends sent me um, sent me uh, a, a quip. 
I, I like when my friends send me like these wise uh, quips. I ask them, you know, keep it. Say so he he says, I probably said this to me four or five months ago. Um, they say that you only gain experience from learning from your mistakes. I'm pretty good at that, so I make a lot more mistakes to get a lot more experience. Something like that, right? It's like so I just make sure make a lot of mistakes. All right, fine. The, the, the moment we think that we're not going, even when, when we're striving to, to, we think we're doing right. But the moment we think we're not going to have those issues and mistakes, we're, we're done. So perhaps, and we'll bring this thought a little more full circle and how to understand in his generation, we'll focus on this, um, how even such a person where God himself is testifying and notice sometimes we think somebody is very wise. We think somebody's a Talmud Chacham. Sometimes we think somebody's a Tzaddik. And then it turns out like the whole picture that we had was completely wrong. It was, we, were, we were totally off. And it's not, even, it's not even surprising anymore. It's like, okay, people are people and, and people make these mistakes. And, and it, it's like nothing, uh, it's very hard to be shocked nowadays. It's very, it's very hard. It's like, uh, unfortunately, it's an unfortunate reality. But when God himself says, Nayach is an ish tzaddik tamim. That means he is an ish tzaddik tamim. And when Hashem himself says that you're an ish tzaddik tamim, and the Torah still speaks about your mistakes, I think that's a big message for us. I think that's a big message. It's a very important message for us. That the, the goal in life is not to, is the goal in life is not to not make mistakes. That's so not the goal in life. Thought, it's so to be. It's to be on the path. Yeah. Why wasn't he ever? I mean, I mean, obviously. Good. So, so maybe we'll have time to get into that. There's a difference. The Mepharshim get into the difference between Noyach and Avram, and I don't get um, uh, yet. I don't want to get too uh, too in this, but in in a nutshell, Noyach was incredible at refraining from doing that. From he was like the sore meirah to refrain from bad, and that was his approach to his growth. And Avram was more of the asetov, where he the our forefathers Noach. He was the Ishalitam. He wasn't one of our forefathers. Man, he's not one of the others. He's not Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov. Now, we all do come from Noach and Amma, you know, come from Noach and his wife. The whole world restarted from them and their children. But as far as being the patriarchs, he wasn't one of the patriarchs. And the, the, the ultimate uh, nutshell answer that I've seen, you know, th- there's probably more, is the, the, the difference in how they conducted themselves vis-a-vis others. Noach was more of don't do, and our Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov taught people how to do, which was more of an active approach. Yeah. Um, back to the situation with Noah, when... Yeah, I, possibly. That could be a message. You could take it if you, take it, take it if you want. All right. So, Noah was an Ishtadik B'deris of in his generation. Now, let's look at Rashi. Rashi says that B'deris um, of in his generation, fascinating expression, Yeshmer Abuseinu, some of the rabbis explain this as a praise. Look how great Noah was, despite everybody around him being pathetic. V'yesh darshan also, and there are those that expound it as lignai, as a uh, a lack, as a lack in Noah. He wasn't such a big tzaddik. Why? The Torah says in his generation he's a tzaddik, meaning compared to everybody else, you're a big tzaddik. But if he would have lived with our forefathers, with Avram, so then, all right, the impact that Avram had on the rest of the world and people around them, they were also great, and Noah wouldn't have been considered anything special. So a couple things. First of all, the overriding question is, why would you take something that God says, he's such a big tzaddik, and, and say, eh, kind of. You know, it's like classic, meh, you know. Like, no, good, fine, fine in his generation. Seriously, I mean, we're taught, 
or taught the judge favorably, right? <laughs> and again, God says he's good. So you're going to go with Darshan Lagnai? I saw a beautiful idea. First of all, it says some rabbis view it as a praise, and there are those. It doesn't say there are other rabbis. It's beautiful. Some rabbis say, you know, it's such a praise among such pathetic people. It's hard. Can you imagine if he would have been with Avram? Wow, how great! <laughs> those are the rabbis. The Yish, and there are some other people that say, nah, not so good. But doesn't call them rabbis. Meaning, what is a rabbi? Rabbi is not a position. It's somebody who's supposed to be built by Torah. Right? So if you're built by Torah, you're going to view this positively. If you're not built by Torah, so then you'll, you, know, you won't necessarily come to view it uh, positively. So a nice idea that we're not calling, we're not calling these people uh, Rabbi Seinu. But I wanted to, to share how the, the Mepharshim explained this is not actually anything negative about Noach. It's not anything negative. Those who darshan at Lignai, they're not doing it to bring out a lack in Noach's greatness, God forbid. But rather, they're using it in the opposite way. They're saying like this. Look how a person who only in his generation would be considered a tzaddik and God still says about them they're an ish tzaddik tam. Mm. Which means sometimes we're like, oh, I'm never going to be as great as those who live in a different community that are surrounded by this. Or I'm never going to be as great as somebody who has that type of family support. Or I'm never going to be as great as... Uh, right? And therefore, so I'm, okay, so we feel like we're second fiddle. So the Bali Muslims say, no, 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 no. Nayach had, had all those issues surrounding him. And you know what? Th- there was no way for him to get to a level that they had in greater generations. That doesn't minimize anything. God himself still says, Nayach is an ish tzaddik tamim. He's a complete tzaddik in his generation. That's it. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing else to, um, there's nothing else to uh, uh, talk about. He's a, he's a tremendous tzaddik. So why are you saying lagnai? Kind of to give chizuk to everybody else, to give encouragement to everybody else. And this answer comes out because there's a, um, the Beis Yisrael, the Ger Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Ger Hasidus during the Yom Kippur War. So there were many parents who came to the Rebbe to, to give names of their children who were fighting. And uh, the Ger Rebbe <clears throat> would go to the Kaisel every single day. He'd go to the Kaisel every day and he'd beg Hashem to uh, have mercy on these uh, young holy soldiers. And... Um, one of the times that he was at the Kaisel, so he shared with people around him this question, why would people say something negative about Noah if you don't have to? Somebody say, say positive. Why do, you gotta, why do you get focused on negativity? So he explained, it must be that Chazal, our sages are concerned, that if everybody thought Noah was such a big tzaddik that's beyond anything else, so we're going to say, okay, only a big tzaddik can have the world come from them. Only a big side that can have this type of offspring, offspring meaning actions, that they are an ish tzaddik tamim. But in order to, to, and the whole world ended up restarting from, from Noyach and his family, but in order to get to that level, oh, you got to be huge. And therefore, Rashi quotes the sages who minimize and they say, you know, little old me can also do something. Little old me can also accomplish. And he said, and the Beisrael says, he says to those around him, he says, you know, this statement of Chazal, you know, it's this Rashi that, that allows me to come to the Kosal every day to Davim. Because otherwise, why do people send me names? Like, what am I? And he wasn't trying to be humble. What are you saying? Like, we view ourselves like we're kids, right? That's how we all view ourselves. Like, I don't, sometimes we're given a responsibility, like, like what, I'm a kid. Like, what are you doing? Like, what, like give it to an adult. There's got to be an adult in the world somewhere, 
right? They say when you're a kid, you look at every adult, you know, and you're like, wow, they have their stuff together. You know, they got it. They become an adult. You're like, all right, <laughs> we're all winging it. <laughs> we're all figuring this out, right? We're all, we're just, we're just doing So the basis role also, he was, you know, he's, he says, listen, he says, he says, it's this Rashi on Nayak, why a little tzaddik like me, a little old me can feel like I'm going to go to the Kaisal and Davin. I'll go to that. And this is why we, when we dive in, right, you hear about people and they need this Yeshua, they need this salvation, they need various things. You want them to have greater simcha and whatever. So you take, you take their name and you dive in for them. Uh, who am I to dive in? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anybody who, who even if we don't you know, consider ourselves to be the biggest tzaddikim, we're in place to, to, uh, to help, help the world and help uh, save the world and help the world restart the same way, uh, way Nayach did. Um, there's a uh, the Chassam Seifer reads this verse beautifully. I want to read this verse like the Chassam Seifer. This is just a, another separate beautiful idea, and that is that there's ten generations from Noah down to Avram. I don't remember if we shared this previously. It could be. It could be not. I'm not sure. Ten generations from Noah to Avram. Noah died in the year two thousand and six of the world. Avram Avinu was born in the year nineteen forty eight. Familiar number, right? I don't know if he was born in the year 1948. Noah died in the year 2006. So there's 10 generations where Avram Avinu, and if you think about it, it adds so much to the story. We think like Avram, like he never had anybody who he was exposed to that knew anything. He was alive with Noah for 58 years. His great, 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 great grandfather eight greats and then grandfather, if that's 10 generations, right? Um, was alive with him and walked planet Earth with him for fifty the first 58 years of his life. And we know that he ultimately found Hashem at age 40. He already was striving as a young child. He broke his father's idols. Huh? But the, what, just trying to create some context, it's got to be things went so far, even towards the end of Noah's lifetime, that like... Avram's father, Terach, who was an idol worshiper and an idol seller, who was nine generations from Nayach, must have kept him away, and, and, or whatever it is. It's, just, it's, it's a fascinating idea to contemplate. But the Torah actually hints to us this reality. And listen to how the Chassam Seifer reads the verse. Ela toldos Noach. This is the offspring of Noach. Now we're going to translate, according to the Chassam Seifer, offspring also to mean literally children. Noach, nun ches, numerical values, gematrias, nun ches, nun is 50, ches is 8, 58. Noach, for 58 years, thank you so much, Noach, for 58 years, there was an ish tzaddik tamim, there was a man who was a complete tzaddik, haya, bedorosav, in the same generation. In his generation, for 58 years, there was a man who was a complete tzaddik, who walked in front of God like Noah. Who's that? Avram Avinu. Noah had the merit for 58 years to have one of his offspring walk with him, so to speak, in front of Hashem. And Ela told us Noah, this is, who's the ultimate offspring of Noah that we're going to be speaking about in next week's parsha, Right? For the 58 years, there was another man who was at Tzadik Tamim in the same generation. That's also hinted to says the Chassam Sofer um, in, in these words. So it's, and it reads beautifully. It reads beautifully into, uh, into how this all, uh, all plays out. Okay. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. 
Shem yeah. And that was the son and grandson of Noah, correct? Correct. So where were they at in the line of? Also, they were they were they were studying Torah and mitzvos. But again, they had, like that was the first yeshiva, well, first yeshiva. So and right? and and it went for quite quite some time. That yeshiva was a very right, long lasting yeshiva. For fourteen years, That's right. and so on and so forth. So he he had some of the other children were all direct children were walking with Hashem. Yes. Not to that level. Not to the level. Not to that level. It's an interesting level. It's a very because interesting. Because when you're talking about, here they have a place to study. That's right. And they have, they're open for, for, the, for those to come and learn, but they're not at the level. God willing, one day, uh, Shem's going to give, hopefully give me and us the clarity to understand the differences and the whys. I don't really know yet, but this is something I'm really keeping tabs on. I'm like searching every year around these partials. I'm like, I'm like trying to get a little more so that one day maybe Hashem will like open up and, and just explain like Adam and Chava, their children down to Noah, they were alive for a thousand years. You know, Avram died, Adam died, Adam died at 930. Chava died at 987. She was 987 years old. Noah, um, Noah uh, also lived for over 900 years and he passed away in 2006. So he was born like only 100, 200 so years. And again, they're living for centuries back then after Chava passed away. And now you have Noah and then Avram Avinu is born in Noah's lifetime and you have tzaddikim who are around. And when we talk about Avram Avinu, we speak about like somebody who started from scratch. Right? The way that we refer to Avram is somebody who's really started... Yet, we have Shem and Aver. We have this yeshiva that's teaching Torah and mitzvos, primarily the mitzvos, the seven Noahide laws that they had at that time, um, until Avram, and then we received the eighth mitzvah of Brismila. But how this all plays out and the differences between Shem, eh? I've heard things and I've seen people talk, nothing's really hit home for me yet. So, uh, Bez Hashem. But uh, be it as it may, it's obvious, it's clear that the heavy hitters that we need, the Torah needs us to learn about on the basic verse basis is Noah and his family, and then Avram and his family. And Shem and Aver is they, they, they historically, and how the Jewish nation is built, are on the peripheral. Why? I'm not sure yet. Well, they intertwine, though, because Yaakov went to Shem and Aver. For sure. But why are they on the before... peripheral? Why are they peripheral over here? Why aren't they stars of the show that, like, they were the solid, consistent yeshiva mm-hmm. that kept it, and they're not considered that? I don't have a full grasp. Yeah. Maybe Hashem wanted Avram Avinu to do it by himself. He didn't want any other... I mean, it, what's so striking about him is that he did connect all by himself to Hashem. For sure. And that's his strength. So he wasn't supposed to be influenced so, by these other people. But they were around. Yeah, obviously not. You're obviously correct. But he, but they were around. So what was happening? Where are they? <laughs> but maybe they would have influenced him in a way that, that Hashem didn't. Wouldn't have given him that opportunity? Yes. You're saying good. You're saying, a, yeah, you're saying an important idea. I hear. I'm saying I hear that. There, All right. Crossed over. Huh? He's an Aver. He's an Aver. Yeah, he's, he was uh, uh, in Ivry. He was in Ivry. He's yeah, the other side. Okay. Here we go. Um, here we go. Let's keep going. 
see where I'm up to in the notes over here. Yeah. So Noah has three sons. These sons are Shem, Cham, and Yefes. Interestingly, we come from Shem. The Jewish people come from Shem. Um, the verse tells us later on, after they come out of the Teva, that Noah gives them a bracha. He says that the beauty is going to come to Yefes, the youngest child, Yaft. The word Yefes is Yafe. It's called the word Yafe, beautiful. Yaft elokim Yefes. The beauty comes to Yefes. However, v'yishkon ba'ahalei Shem. God dwells in the house of shame, which doesn't necessarily have all the, uh, all the beauty, doesn't have all the beauty that Yefes will have. Now there's, you, you leave the, you know, you go outside of the uh, world of Torah and mitzvos, and there's a lot of beautiful edifices, and they're really beautiful, really beautiful. That's the beauty that they're blessed with. But the Shechina doesn't reside necessarily in a place of beauty. The Beis HaMikdash was a beautiful place. We're obligated to make sure that our shoals and our Bate Medrash and our place of holiness, that's a God's home, that it's a, it's a place that looks re- respectable and, is, you know, and, and we, uh, we give it all the honor that it deserves. But just because there's beauty in a place does not necessarily mean that God's dwelling there. And very often it can actually be the opposite. Or Bianco Galinsky brings down a, a uh, I don't know if it's a true story, if he was reciting this over as a parable, he was a big darshan, he was a big lecturer, so I don't, I don't uh, recall when I saw this, uh, when I saw this story, if he brought it down as a, as a parable that he created to bring out this message, or whether it was a real story, but he brings down an incident of a, a, Jewish, a, a Jewish fellow who's uh, very much under his luck financially, and he decides that he has two sons and they're going to be able to break this cycle of poverty. And um, he saves up little by little as a store owner and little by little he saves up a lot of money to, to uh, purchase homes for his children so they can, you know, they can have a little bit of a piggy bank to start out with when they, when they reach adulthood. And the oldest child uh, you know, reaches adulthood, call it 20 years old, 30 years old, however, at a certain age. So the father takes all the money he saved up and he purchases him a nice apartment somewhere in Haifa, and the, now he's got his own apartment, he's able to leave the little places in Mayasharim, wherever they were living, which are also expensive, but I guess, you know, whatever, and, uh, and he's got a nice big apartment in Haifa, and the real estate market goes up, and eventually he sells it, and now he's, he's big in business, and he buys himself a huge villa on the Tel Aviv, uh, you know, coast, Okay. The second son comes of age and the father's got no more money to give. He only saved up, you know, he used it all up on the first days. So I guess, all right, you know, he could help him pay a little bit of rent for an apartment somewhere. Okay. Now, 20 years later, the father is now elderly and he calls up his children and he says, you know, I really can't take care of myself anymore. I would like to come live uh, with, with your families. And it only made sense. The one who had the more space in Tel Aviv should be the one to take care of, of the father. So he goes, um, he goes to this uh, villa in Tel Aviv, and he can't get in. It's a gated, uh, it's a gated community, right? Doesn't nice. He calls up his son. His son's like, "Oh, daddy, you have to, t- you have to tell me first that you're coming. And, uh, I have to tell the guard and uh, a whole thing." Fine, t- tell the guard. He's already like, you know, he doesn't feel welcome already. You know, it doesn't. It's not, it's not, he goes to the apartment and uh, they don't know who he is. Your name's not written down. The whole story, but. Finally, he's able to contact his son and daughter-in-law and they, they get him to the next level of, of security. 
All right, he walks up the steps, knocks on the door of the apartment, the apartment door opens, and, you know, there are two dogs jump on him, and, and he's not used to this, and this is not, you know, and uh, fine, but he'll get used to it. No, he'll sit there, dogs, while they're, while they're at work doing their thing. And he ends up, for the next couple of months, his son's out the whole day working, his daughter-in-law's out the whole day working, he's sitting at home, but, you know, taking care of their, taking care of their dogs, and, and uh, you know, he doesn't know what to do, they tell him to turn on the television, and... He just doesn't feel comfortable. He's in this beautiful thing and he has a beautiful ocean front. He doesn't feel comfortable. So finally he packs his bag. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. So he goes to the next son's house. Goes, you know, to this little little place back in Mayasharim. And he knocks on the door. He actually has one of the family members open the door for him. There's no security. And he comes in and two of his kids are learning Aleph. Two of the grandchildren are learning Aleph Bays and they want to learn Aleph Bays with him. And you know, there's no space for him to sleep, but they, they find him a little private corner behind the couch, you know, where he could, where as long as he wants to be there, he could, you know, and uh, fine. Some of the kids uh, lay next to him, you know, at night, you know, because their Zadie's finally here. And he feels comfortable. He feels comfortable. And Rabianko Galinsky says that, you know, you might say, for how long? <laughs> you know, at a certain point also, you need your space. You might say, for how long? But to put ourselves into this mindset where, there's beauty given to Yefes, but Vyishkon, where do you feel secure? Where do you feel a, a sense of security? That's in the tents of shame, who had the shame and Aver. They had the yeshiva, they had the Torah, they had, there was a certain element of warmth that existed that Hashem, that, that, that Hashem gave Noah to bless the descendants of shame, us, which really is our responsibility. A person could have a nicer home, a person might not have a nicer home. That's not the idea. The idea is to bring the Shekhinah into the homes. You could have a beautiful home and the Shekhinah is there. You could have a beautiful that's not beautiful and the Shekhinah is there. It, it's the feeling that exists inside the home that really is what determines what makes it comfortable. It's not what the home looks like. Now again, you can have a nice home, but that's, that's not a home, that's a house. It's shame that, that shame in their descendants. It's a person who's involved in a world of godliness that you walk in, you just feel comfortable. You feel like, okay, the shechina's here. That's, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, I might, have, I might want a little more space, but I'm fine. That's V'yishka and Balishim. So now I had these children, Shleishabonim, each one different. As shame, as chom, as yafes. But the shachis are the like The world became corrupted in front of Hashem. But himali ha'aretz chamas. And the earth, the world became filled with Hamas. Hamas is um, forced, it, it's translated as robbery. It's really forced selling. It's, it's a way to get what you want without having a, a court be able to pull it out from you. The Medrash tells us one of the things that they would do is they would steal minimal amounts of money that no court can hold them accountable for. So I'll steal $5 because in order to be put away in prison, you'd steal a minimum of $6. Okay, I'll steal five dollars, and then a week later I'll do the next thing, and I don't even feel like it's a problem anymore. Hamas is also forced sales, so I might walk over to you and I'm like, "Hey, uh, I, I like your car. Give me your car." I'm like, you can't have my car. Okay, here's twenty thousand dollars. Now your car's mine. I didn't steal it. I paid you for it, but I didn't want to sell it to you. Okay, but now you did. Now you did, and within their society and their system, people were just out for themselves. And there's a statement that we. We quote pretty often in Perkei Abbas that has to do with a lot with understanding others and Midos. Sometimes we feel people are really out to hurt us and get us. And the truth is, and it doesn't change anything. It doesn't make a right chas v'shalom. But it's, it's important to know this, 
reality that most people who, who hurt us are not really out to hurt us. Most people who hurt us are just, they're in it for themselves. They don't, they don't even know. They simply don't know that it's hurtful. I'm sure I'm like this. It, it's, it, it's, you, you don't see past what you know. You don't see, and sometimes you only know yourself. And there's different extents of this. You might not, not, you might not know that's, that somebody else is in tsar or is, or is hurt. And that is partially okay as long as you're aware that maybe you don't know and you're looking to find out how to improve. But when you have a society, which is what the society of Nayakh was, which it was full of Hamas, it was full of people that were just in it for themselves. That's Hamas. I'm in it for myself. It doesn't make a difference what you want. What matters is what I want. The, the earth was filled with that. And therefore, the very next verse says, God now decides to destroy the world. When you're only in it for yourself, the world is built upon chesed. It's built upon kindness. As, as uh, we've learned previously, Noah spent the entire time in the Teva, the entire year in the Teva, feeding animals. That's what he did. He took care of the animals for the entire year. He fed them and he fed them and he fed them. He had to be doing constant chesed in order to be saved from the mabul. That's what he needed to do. The, 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 the world needs kindness to exist in order for the world to exist. There's a direct relationship between humanity and earth. There's a direct relationship between humanity and any other creation. If humanity is corrupt, the entire world becomes corrupt. I was sitting here this morning um, preparing the dafyomi for later on, and uh, Rabbi David was sitting here after Shachris, and he he shared with me that he he heard that there was some some person who spoke to Ash uh, Rabbanim about twenty five thirty years ago that shared that the, apparently Congress has a um, an award that they give out. Uh, there's a group of of uh, Congress people. I don't know if they give it out or or some sort of paper creates it of the worst spent money that they did that year. Is there such a... You've heard of this? Yeah. Huh? The guy, the guy died that was writing that book. But the guy who oversaw this whole thing died. So apparently close to 25, 30 years ago, um, one of the... Uh, so they, they created this award, you know, for the dumbest money spent by Congress. And one of the years, one of the things that won the award was the, apparently in one of the bills that in order to get it funded, they needed to have some Congress people from, from California in San Francisco, and they were trying to figure out the seagull population. <laughs> trying to figure out seagull populations around the world, around the country. So it came out that on average around the country, seagull populations were some either 50-50 or 40-60. Grace, in San Francisco, it was 90% male, 10% female, 30 years ago, 30 years ago. That's when San Francisco was the capital. Now it's everywhere, but that's when San Francisco was the capital. It's not shocking. It's not surprising because the Torah already tells us the way that humans live has a direct influence on everything. The world is a sponge. The world is a sponge to our actions. It's a very powerful uh, idea and responsibility. When, when it's, it's kind of going into the beauty that Hashem gave to the house of shame. 
why, why in certain places, certain rooms, certain people you're with, you just feel secure with them? You feel secure. Where, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Because there's, there's it, 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 something happened to the air. This room, B'li'ayin Hara, is a room where there's a lot of tear. There's a lot of terror that goes on here. There, there's Kedusha. There's holiness. It's, there's, you know, hopefully not so much you know, uh, stupidity that goes on here. Halavai. You walk into a shul. You walk into some people's you know, uh, environments, like we said. It's, it's a comfortable place to be. There's other environments where there's so much, there's so much gook and schmutz that seeped into the walls. Revelia Lapian, who was a reshiva in England, he says that when he was a kid in, in England... There was a hospital where people would go in. You know, they say hospitals aren't, uh, a hospital's not a good place for a sick person. So true, right? There was a specific hospital that people would go into and they would come out sicker when they went with different illnesses. And the person went in with a broken arm and what would come out, and, and they, all of a sudden they get these illnesses, these respiratory issues, and, uh, and nobody, they couldn't figure out what's happening until finally they realized that the walls of this hospital were built with uh, were built with wood. Is that somebody's or somebody? Uh, oh, okay, it's fine. It's fine. I was gonna off. I was gonna offer to answer it. That was it. <laughs> so um, I like meeting new people. Uh, there was a, a hospital with wall. The walls were made out of wood, and over the course of years, so much so much bacteria. And had gone into the, uh, the walls were simply making people sick. They had to knock down the building, and they burnt. They took it out to outside the city to burn it, so the so the smoke, you know, wouldn't even impact the people living there. The the you know, our environment is a sponge for what we create, and that's that's an achrayz. That's what that's the responsibility. The world, the medrash tells us that that um, the the earth was developing food. That was, that was, um, it was like shotness. It was shotness. You, you'd plant one thing and, and like a graft of food would come out. Because the, the, way peop, the way humanity was mating with each other and their whole society, it was just everything got farmished, everything got messed up. And the whole, the whole world was just like, it was a bilbul. It was, everything was just confusing and, and it had to be, it, it, it had to be purged. Like it needed to, needed to be kosher. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I Kodesh Baruch do, he brought a boiling water from underneath and the world had to be kosher, so to speak. It needed to be, uh, needed to be restarted. But interestingly, what caused it, with all this going on, that wasn't the reason why Hashem destroyed the world. That's what needed to be kashered. But why does Hashem do this? Because of Hamas, because people couldn't see past their own noses. That's what brought the actual flood. But once the flood's here, so now you know, we know there's other things that needed to be cleaned too. But if people would have been giving, even with everything else terrible that happened, the, the Mabel wouldn't happen, the Torah tells us. So it's, a, it's a fascinating idea. Okay. Yikes. Ready at 1.30. Okay. I'm going to share one more thing. One more thing. We'll jump ahead a little bit, and this is such a uh, such a, uh, a beautiful thought. I want to make sure that we uh, we mention this, and that is what ultimately is the sign that there's not going to be another flood to the world? Rainbow. A rainbow. A rainbow. Okay. What's with the rainbow? What's with the rainbow? So, um, Dr. David Pelkowitz, who is a uh, by, by at this time, a well-known professor of psychology and he's been a, a, a well-known therapist for decades, he tells over the following incident, tells over the following story. He says, a 15-year-old yeshiva boy from Brooklyn, says, he told a story over a while ago, okay? So 
It's got to be a couple decades ago already. A 15-year-old Jew boy from Brooklyn came to his office to see him. Why? His father is insisting that he comes. He's 15 years old. And a very well-known family in the world of Torah. Well-known family in the world of Torah. Very successful. His brothers and sisters graduated from top yeshivas. Extraordinary. They married, you know, big name and wealthy families. And everybody's, you know, everything's great. Incredible. This kid... He's 15 years old. He's on his seventh high school already. Okay? He's on his seventh high school and he's like 15 months into his high school career. Right? So uh, he, his father sends him to Dr. David Polkovitz. This kid needs help. Never. Pathetic kid. He can't be matzliach in anything. Can't be matzliach. Right? Embarrassment to the family. So he comes in and Dr. Polkovitz says, from the moment this kid walked into my room, I, I knew that I was going to connect with him. He was a special kid. He's like, I, I just saw... There was something going on with this kid. Um, so he speaks to him for a few minutes. And he says, he says, he says to the boy, he says, I don't really see a big, a big issue. You know, I know your father wants me to see you. I don't really see a big issue. Um, but since your father wants us to meet, I have an idea. I have an idea. You know this? Yeah. I want to meet the family. Yeah. I, I think I shared this like five, six years ago. Um, I want to meet the family. So the next, the next week at their session, this kid comes back with a few of his siblings, his mother, father, grandmother, grandfather. This kid comes back with anybody in the family who was able to make it to the appointment, brings them all in. And Dr. Pegler says he's never done. He's like, he, he doesn't do it. He's like, it's not a normal thing to do. He's like, I just knew this was the right thing to do. I knew this was the right thing to do. Okay, so they all come in, they're sitting in his office, it's quite crowded, and he says to the father who insisted that the son come to him, he says, um, you know, you're suggesting that your child needs therapy, you tell us publicly what you think the issue is. Mm. Tell us what you think the issue is with your kids in front of the rest of your family. So the father says, he says, listen, you know, he's, he's looking around at his other kids, and he says, Baruch Hashem, Everybody's, you know, was successful in school and in their yeshivas and in their Yiddishkeit. And then, 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 he goes through the whole spiel and he says, this kid's different. I can't get him to listen. He's always, he can't sit down in a classroom. He can't, he can't figure himself out. He's a, he's a confused puppy. And um, I want him to learn how to dedicate himself to a productive life. I want his life to be productive. And the way it's going now, if he doesn't get guidance on how to handle himself, it's not, he's going to be lost. So that's the father's spiel. Um, Dr. Pogba says, he says, I didn't respond. I just sat there and we all sat there. It was very uncomfortable. And the first one to speak up was the grandfather. The grandfather finally speaks up after a few minutes and he says, I want to say something. This is what the grandfather says. He says that he was a very wealthy, successful uh, uh, fellow in life and a number of areas. And he turns to his son, the father, and he says, after that speech, I'm, I'm thinking of excluding you from my will. I'm thinking of excluding you from my will. And he says, you all know, turns to his family, you all know, he says, I grew up in Poland, a very large family. All my brothers were learning in yeshiva. Excellent, beautiful Everything's going right, fantastic. 
And if there would have been diagnosis back then, I would have, any terminology, I would have had the entire alphabet after my name, not in a good way. Mm-hmm. I would have been, I would have had ABC, I would have had DEFG, I would have had, I would have had everything, everything after my name, okay? I couldn't sit in school, I could, I, I could barely, I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I was just, I was the black sheep of the family. And my parents had tremendous agony, tremendous agony uh, because of me. Uh, but one thing that I knew was that I wasn't stupid. And I was incredibly shrewd. And one day, in, he's like, I love to just sit out in the park and, and read with nobody bothering me. And I would go hide or else my parents would tell me I'm wasting my life. And then one day, he, in 1938, he picks up a copy of Mein Kampf. Mm-hmm. And he starts reading. And he finishes the book. And he comes back home. And he says, Tata. He says, this guy's serious. This guy's serious. Germany and Poland share a border. We got to leave. And his father says, stop speaking nonsense. If you'd be in yeshiva, you'd stop reading all the stupidity, all the foolishness. And, um, you know, go sit like your brothers and you wouldn't fill your head with all this rubbish and all this, uh, you know, all this crazy things, crazy anti-Semite. Ignore him. Ignore him. He says, I looked at my father and he says, maybe you should be right that uh, I belong in a regular high school. Um, but I'm not crazy. And I'm quite clever and savvy, and I know this guy's serious, and therefore, if you ain't leaving, I'm leaving. I'll leave without you. And he came over to America in 1938, and he was the only member of his family that survived. Um, and he looks at his son, the father, and he says, our whole family only exists because of a boy like me and your son. That's the only reason why, that's the only reason why we exist. And... Your child, just like me, how, how, can, you, how can you say that he, he's not going to be sick? He's not like you, that's it. He's not like you. Take it easy. So he says, he says don't put him down. You have no right to denigrate, uh, denigrate your son. Your Torah is because of a kid like him. That your, your, your grandchildren, your, your, the whole thing. And, you know, the, the sages teach us that if a person can't find the good in, in the, I'll tell you the expression, if a person can't find the good and the honor in whatever God made, better off that you weren't here. It's a Gemara in Tainus. What does that mean? So listen to this. It's a better, if you can't find the good in, 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 uh, in God's creation, it's better off you're not here. What does that mean? Omar Rababa, ready for this? We're going to end with this. Wow. Rababa says, Oh, you know what it means you don't find the good in God's world? Zeha mestakel bekeshes. It's because you gaze at the sun. No, not the sun. The rainbow. Thank you. Zeha mestakel bekeshes. You know what it means you have no concern of God's people? Because you look at the rainbow. If you gaze at a rainbow, you have no concern about what, what God's created. What in the world? What? What? What's a rainbow have to do with anything? So... The, uh, the answer is that the rainbow specifically, and this is why a lot of things, a lot of our minds are going to go to a different rainbow. Um, this is why the rainbow being out there in the world is very ironic. It's very ironic. But, but listen to a rainbow. Listen to what a rainbow is. This is what a rainbow is in reality. This is what a rainbow is in reality. The rainbow represents the glory of Hashem. Why a rainbow specifically? You have Niagara Falls, you have a Grand Canyon, 
There's beautiful things out there. Why a rainbow specifically? Says Rav Gedalia Shor. Rav Gedalia Shor says that the creation of a rainbow is just simply how the sunlight shines, refracts on water droplets, and that results in a spectrum of beautifully arranged colors. All about just how the shemesh, how the sun shines on it, which means a rainbow is really a reflection of one light. And it's just a matter of how it hits that water droplet that's going to determine the color that's there. And this is what we're meant to learn about the greatness of Hashem. Hashem is the Shemesh, the sun. And he throws different colors to the world. There's different colors. Um, but at the root of all the colors, there's one Shemesh. A person who can't see that there's different types, again, it has to be on the proper derech. A person who can't see there's different types means you can't see Hashem. This is the irony of how a rainbow, something so holy, was hijacked. Because a rainbow actually is, the Gemara is telling us, is a classic representation of godliness in the world. When I see a rainbow, what I see is a, a one light source. So I need to look back. I need to, some, sometimes Hashem's color is going to be, you know, I was, I was at, what's today, Thursday, yesterday, Wednesday, taking my, uh, um, taking one of my kids to a, uh, an appointment and somebody asked, I was taking Isaac to an appointment and they asked him what his favorite color is. He said, shiny blue, shiny blue. And I, I immediately cracked up. The person who she, he had an appointment with was like, okay, shiny blue. And in my mind, I'm like, hello, because he just, red and orange, yellow, green, shiny blue, purple too. Like, he's like, okay, blue is shiny. That's it. That's the song. As I get this. That's it. He's just, he's just quoting the song. It's not blue, it's shiny blue. So that's it. A four-year-old, it's, it's, only, it's only shiny blue. But you look at the color, it's all these different colors, red, orange, yellow. But that red and orange, it's not two different things. It's one source. When you have one person who has specific talents and specific strengths and a specific journey, and somebody has different talents, different strengths, and a different journey, the Gemara says, if you can't bring glory to God's creation... You don't see God. It's like you're not existing in the world. Says of Abba, somebody who gazes at a rainbow, what are you looking at God for? What are you, you look at, all you see is a rainbow. That's all you see. All you see is that I'm different and then this color and there's, there's red and then there's orange and there's yellow and there's a green. No, turn around and like, why is there red, orange, yellow, green? Shiny blue. <laughs> well, why? Ah, oh, there's a Shemesh. Ah, oh, there's a sun. It's just a matter of how it's reflecting on everybody differently. Ah, oh, so that's sensible. That makes sense, but you got you got to be able to look back towards the source. Now, it doesn't a lot of ideologies are false? We're not dealing with ideologies; we're dealing with people. The 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 paths and the journeys and the the strengths that Hakadosh Baruch Hu gives to different people, we have to learn to respect it. You know, it's going to be those who aren't matzliach in school and those who who don't have the ability to sit down. They're going to go and accomplish something else. But we have the we have the responsibility to find how to utilize that and ultimately know that that's also from their bnei the Rebbein Shem has, has these types and all types for, for a reason, and it's all to, to ultimately bring out his kavod, to bring out his honor. Okay, we'll hold it here. Any questions, any thoughts? Go ahead. Is, is a rainbow then a bowl? We're looking at is that the it, represent, it represents godliness. I mean, what do you mean? Is it the shechina? It's not the shechina. It it's not. It's, it's a phys, it could be a physical representation of it. 
you know, of the different types. But I, I haven't seen that. That's the Shekhinah is the divine presence. That's God's presence in the world. It's close to it. I hear. I hear. 